looking at the cover and flipping through it, I was like, oh, great. Some weird shit by Ryan. And, you know, I gave it the college try and I felt like I was stuck in a Radiohead album in a really, really good way. This is a narrative dream, man. What's wrong? Well, Ryan, we're heading into middle age. Nay, we are middle aged. And I've got a family, and you've got two apartments. And I've just. (laughs) Giant first world problems here to solve. (laughs) Undermine us from the beginning. (laughs) And despite our first world problems, I've been thinking about how unstable everything feels sometimes. We've got generative AI on the cusp of changing the world in ways I can't even begin to imagine, other than people who write for a living will be out of a job. People are worried about whether it's safe to deposit money in banks. We're in a world where thousands of people are just being laid off at the drop of the hat. Now, that's some real positive thinking, Roman. Think about it. I mean, in a world that's completely unstable and changing, often in ways that make folks feel deeply uncomfortable, I mean, what are we supposed to do? It's sad to say, if I had to grade the state of the world right now, I'd give it an F. An F, you say? Yeah, why? Because after E for Esther's notebooks, F happens to be the next letter of the alphabet. Oh, sure. Just ignore my worries and warnings about the world as we teeter off into an abyss of excess and bring it back to this fucking podcast, which also starts with an F. Anyway, this week we're reading Familiar Face by Michael DeForge. And Roman, just like you, DeForge is fascinated with the societal systems that surround us and how we are often trapped by them. DeForge is a Canadian cartoonist who worked for the Cartoon Network show Adventure Time, but in the world of indie comics, he's known for his quirky and offbeat graphic novels. He started off working in web comics, but he really burst onto the scene with his first long-form graphic novel, Ant Colony, which is about a bunch of black ants trying to exist and be productive despite being at war with red ants. And since Ant Colony debuted in 2014, and we didn't read it on this podcast like we were supposed to, DeForge has been incredibly prolific, producing about one book a year. In fact, I read somewhere that Familiar Face is his 1,000th comic. Familiar Face is one of DeForge's most recent books, having been published in 2020, which was perfect timing for something like this. In it, an unnamed protagonist lives in a world that's constantly changing, constantly being updated, where disruption is a... You guessed it, constant. The road to work might change overnight. People's bodies are always being optimized and upgraded, and your next-door neighbor might change at a moment's notice or without any notice at all. The protagonist of Familiar Face works in an office reading anonymous complaints, but not really being able to do anything about them or even answer them. It's a surreal world that's both absurd and eerily reflective of how we exist today. I'm Roman Segel. And I'm Ryan Joe. And we're two guys who are just making it up as we go along. Except for this podcast. This podcast is the only thing in the world that makes sense. But speaking of making sense, let's talk familiar face. Raman, what was your first impression when you opened it? And how did that impression change when you finally finished the book? You you know, so I joked about this. Like, we were supposed to read something by Michael DeForge a while ago, and it didn't happen. And I remember getting the book from the library, 
and looking at the cover and flipping through it, I was like, oh, great, some weird shit by Ryan. And, you know, that was the impression I had of this when I got it from the library. And, you know, I gave it the college try and I felt like I was stuck in a Radiohead album in a really, really good way. Like halfway through reading this, I could hear like the lyrics to Fitter Happier <laughs> like playing through. This is a narrative dream, man. It's it was very pleasant. It it kind of extends out to kind of a really extreme degree. Where's all of this heading? This thing that we're in, left unchecked, <laughs> where's it gonna go? <laughs> and, and what I loved is how how personal it was, right? So there's kind of like the setting and the surrounding and the gimmick of what society is going to be, but through the personal lens of like one person's worry if anyone who's ever had kind of like that what ifism about their life, their lost loves, their their jobs, like this book is like, I don't know if he's intending for it to be deeply personal, but it kind of hit a note with me. I, I don't know. What about you, Ryan? It's a book that's that that really kind of blends the way we interact with both the physical world as well as the digital world. And I think it's something that could probably only be done in like the comics medium. Like just, just as an example, there's, an, uh, there's a scene where somebody gives the protagonist a letter and the protagonist opens the letter, but how the protagonist opens the letter physically is that, is that she scrolls a cursor over it and opens it. So there's this blending of like, digital iconography and, and 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 that's kind of how these people sort of interface with the world around them and to me that was just it created a feeling that made this whole world very both surreal but also very very familiar because we're all familiar with like clicking on something to clicking scrolling the arrow cursor over something to open it but to see it actually kind of used the way michael deforge uses it the the way Michael DeForge uses this digital iconography to show how people interact with the world around them, I thought was really, really, it, it created such a weird vibe um, that, you know, when you first open the book, it's just a bunch of shapes and strange, you know, the, the figures aren't even recognizably human always, but he always somehow manages to ground it and, and, and to make it very relatable despite all of that. And I thought that was like a real, a real accomplishment. And it's also something that made everything that happened within the book really resonate with me on an emotional level. Yeah, I mean, this was, um, I, th I think I kind of said, it's kind of like a very literal dream. Like mm. the forms, the forms aren't so abstract, right? I mean, there are forms of beings interacting with other beings and screens and boxes and roads and stuff. And it's kind of abstract, but you can really make sense of what's going on. And the, you know, the narration is is a very first person kind of story about a relatively simple plot which kind of narrates what's kind of happening beyond that so it's it made sense but to your point it was surreal so it's kind of like it's kind of like if you woke up from a dream and you just kind of wrote everything down that happened it's really weird but there's kind of a narrative thread that that kind of pulls through the whole thing um yeah it's a, a literal dream man it's kind it, of it also it also kind of makes you think about how the digital world has really impacted the way we live today and the way we interact with with the real world. You know, because the two uh, guys talking to a microphone to each other over the internet with, uh, for a podcast that will be distributed digitally. 
and update it if we have if we discover we we posted something that we shouldn't post. But that's the whole point of this, right? Like the whole the, the world in which the narrator inhabits is constantly being updated. The map is always being updated, and and that mm. actually impacts. Okay, I can't go to work the same way, or their apartment is being updated, so like the furniture is missing, or half of it is gone, or their neighbor is no longer their neighbor. Their neighbor just disappears, and somebody else is living next door to them. And in a way, that's that's very reflective of how obviously how digital culture works. Everything's always being updated. Everything's always being optimized. The apps that you use that you know how to use and you can use with, a, you know, with your eyes closed, suddenly there's an update that just completely changes the way you use it. Or suddenly you'll have to pay for it, right? And all of that stuff is stuff that we kind of take for granted. But in kind of Michael DeForge's world, that, of course, happens to the real world. And it suddenly seems just very absurd and very disruptive in not a particularly positive way, which I think is something that DeForge was also getting at. Like he was kind of, I, I read an interview where he said, you know, he was kind of taking a lot of these things, the optimization of the world around us. And yes, that can be positive because you're making things better, but it can also be like, he's kind of looking at it from the lens of it being like a very bad thing because you have no agency. You have no control over what's optimized and what's not. And you just kind of have, you have no reason for, you know, it just kind of happens to you rather than something that you do yourself. And that that's kind and, of like, and, that, and that's why this book feels like an inevitable endpoint. Like that's where things are going, right? Like everything is being atomized. Everything is being digitized that we do, even though, you know, we still do kind of exist in the meat space, but like most of our interactions are digital. Everything digital touches everything that we do. So it's, you could, if you took some of the things that we do in our life, some of the optimizations, how we get places on our phones, and you tried to tell that to us in the 80s or 90s, it wouldn't make any sense. And no. That's kind of like, that's that's honestly why the dream feels so real. Because it's pulling, you know, most dreams are inhabited by something in your subconscious. And kind of what DeForge is doing is he's taking something in our conscience and like just projecting it forward. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, that's really unsettling too. Yeah. Like, oh, you're right. <laughs> there's this constant anxiety of not being in control or not being able to have any effect on the world for mo most of it, right? I mean, you think of the main character. Her job is, I mean, not only is her body changing always out from under her, but because she's being optimized and updated, but also her job is to read complaints that people are sending in about the world. And... Her job is only to read it so that people kind of, I mean. Feel seen. Yeah. Feel seen, even though they, they don't have no idea that somebody's reading it. She can't respond to it. She can't do anything about it. She has no ability to affect any change based off of the complaints she reads. All she's able to do is just read it. At the same time, there's a bunch of, she's, she's constantly aware of a bunch of people in the hall who are like literally lined up waiting to take her job if she's ever like let go or if she ever can't do it. So it's this, she has this constant job insecurity. She's, she's a member of the gig economy, which was, I read an interview with DeForge. That was something that he was getting at. Like she, this, yeah. this character who's just sort of like trapped in the gig economy, doing a job that's meant to make people feel seen or heard, but at the same time, literally not being able to do anything about it. So there's definitely this feeling of this character who is very much trapped in a system that she has no control over and that doesn't even seem to care whether she exists or not. So it's like, it's, it's, it's actually like a, an incredibly dark conceit, even though the way DeForge handles it, it's not exactly like 
anything horrible happens to her. But it's just this world she lives in is... I mean, it's it's a little too familiar. I mean, sure, we both make things, and I'm talking about us in the real world. We make things that lots of people see or will have impacted. But every once in a while, Ryan, you got to ask yourself, it's like, oh, okay, is the thing I'm doing, does it really matter? You know, if I right. get hit by a bus tomorrow, what changes? And there are people lined up for our jobs. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like my next door neighbor is a carpenter. So he makes stuff on a very small scale. Right. But, you know, you're a reporter for an ad tech press. Right. Like I'm a marketer in advertising technology. You know, when your parents try to figure out what you do, I remember my dad was like, so you, you make the shampoo. No, 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 no. I market it. So you make the commercial. No, no, no. I don't make the commercial. Other people do that. So you do this. No, 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 no. And so we're just like a cog on the wheel is... And that's like the ultimate metaphor of kind of like the protagonist, her, her job. And again, it's one of those things like it just hit way too close to home. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, there is this what is permanent is her feelings for other people. Right. So mm-hmm. like her her lover and both the protagonist, both, all the characters, except for, I think except for Enzo, her roommate, are are <laughs> unnamed. So there's the protagonist and her lover. And one day the lover just disappears and it's not clear why or how whether she disappears because of some sort of weird optimization thing or disappears because she joins like a a group of mercenaries or revolutionaries but that is persistent like the feeling of loss that the main character feels that is the emotional kind of thread that kind of gets through through the whole story is the narrator loves jessica they live together they love each other and one day jessica is gone and she is always searching for her and spoiler alert she she never actually she never she never finds her and which which kind of adds to the whole haplessness of her of her situation but it is a thing that kind of keeps the narrator going and it's 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 sad because the whole world sort of you know her world the, the only point of permanence that this narrator has that the protagonist has is her relationship with Jessica her love for Jessica and and then Jessica is gone just fucking vanish and then the protagonist is left to just pick up the pieces and she tries a bunch of different ways to do so and none of them are particularly satisfactory and again that's just this book like subtly hits the nail on the head on like so many truisms that you can kind of like you know you bring yourself to everything you read and and that's kind of what this book does like Mm. the world is out of your control Everything can be taken from you in an instant and you might be powerless. Now, that's a really pessimistic way to kind of look at the world. But and again, what what DeForge is doing, he's painting extremes of where things could go. And the fact that it's these systems and again, the systems are a metaphor could be literally where we're heading. But it's like there are systems that work, systems that play, you know, use eminent domain as just kind of the, the easiest kind of parallel to draw. But like. Or, or, or use, you know, uh, financial crises that cause you to lose your job or cause you to move somewhere, or cause you to lose your house or a health insurance or sorry, you know, we're all one bad health event away from being bankrupt and losing everything. So it's... Oh, Roman, that sunny disposition is just coming through, man. <laughs> you picked this book, not me. <laughs> like, fortunately, I am in a really good place in my life to read it, but it just it puts it all in perspective on where things are going and, you know, what is security? Like, really, really, you have to ask yourself, is security the money in the bank account for the rainy day when the shitty thing happens? Is security the, the comfort in your your friendships and your relationships that can be taken away at any moment? Or is security, you know, comfort with yourself? 
Well, I mean, I mean, kind of on that topic. So we're recording this. Obviously, ChatGPT has sort of taken the world by storm, and we don't know how things are gonna, how it's gonna change things. Silicon Valley Bank went belly up, and can you just imagine being in that situation where you're like, oh yeah, I've got a job, everything's fine. You still have a job. The job might not be able to pay you because some bank just went fucking like ass over tea kettle. I mean, that's essentially the world that Michael DeForge has described. And that's essentially the world that these people in Familiar Face live in. And that, of course, is the world that we live in. And that's kind of what, you know, in a way, I kind of feel we're still going through it the way like DeForge's characters go through his world. I think we've always been, the thing is, I think we've always been going through it. We were just further removed from it. Yeah. Uh, But I think, I think I just, you just kind of realize how fucking absurd it is. I mean, that's kind of what DeForge does in his book. And I guess we always knew inherently that the way we're living right now is just weird. But I mean, with, I, I think DeForge is just really good at showcasing how weird and unnatural and, and bizarre it is the sort of things that we're willing to accept. I mean, the fact that you don't know whether your bank, that your the pot, the deposits in your bank, are you know, are going to be are, are secure. I mean, I guess you do know, but who knows, right? Things that you thought were true are not true anymore. Well, and before just so good, and, and the and the pace of change is pace only of accelerating. Change. Yeah, and yeah, and, and that's what the book shows. It's like you know, you walk down the hall, and everything's been rearranged, right? There's all these kind of effectively civic space time anomalies kind of. <laughs> The streets change. The streets are in revolt. Like there's the cartographer's revolt that happens later on in the book. And it right, doesn't matter the, who's and causing the, the change. Yes. Yeah. No, no, that's that's exactly it. It doesn't matter who's causing the change. Does it matter that the government or some sort of agency is causing the causing the change or the cartographers are causing the change? What is the difference between the two? In Michael DeForge's world, it doesn't really matter. It's just two different forces of disruption and one wants to be in control and the other one is saying, oh, no, no, no. We want to be in control, but it doesn't really matter who's in control for the people who are living in it. They're still going to be disrupted in a way that they, that makes absolutely no sense to them. And, you know, that's what I I feel is so like just compelling about familiar face is, you know, how, how effortlessly it seems to forge drives this home, but also like the, I guess the insouciance with which the people seem to just like the, the protagonist isn't like freaked out by the fact that there's this cartographer, the cartographers are trying to take control over the optimization schedule of the maps. He doesn't give a shit. She doesn't give a shit. She's, she's just like, Oh, okay. That's interesting. And, and, and in a way that's sort of like, again, there's a sort of apathy or just sort of like a frog in the boiling water sort of reaction that we have to it as well of just like, you know, Hey, I guess, I guess Apple is just completely changing everything. I guess, you know, I guess Microsoft is just going to completely, this corporation is just going to completely change the way we do business now. That's fine. I guess that's okay. But God, it got to, you know, I mean, it does get tiring after a while. How, uh, how prescient is DeForge's work in other books other than this one? So I've only read Ant Colony, which is his first graphic novel. Um, mm-hmm. And I haven't read his other. So it's, I've read Ant Colony, I've read Familiar Face. Ant Colony is very much also like people trapped in a system that they can't control. It feels a little bit more like, you know, because in Familiar Face, the, the protagonist is essentially alone. And Colony, mm. it's sort of like the ants are kind of going around just complaining about their job. <laughs> and they have like this, this really hor- Their job is basically to go and like jerk off on the queen so she, they can fertilize her eggs. I remember there was a scene where they're just kind of like in line ejaculating on on the like the queen's eggs so that they can hopefully be fertilized and then kind of moving on. It, there's this sort of like, 
it's a, both absurd, but also the sort of like assembly line sort of mentality that they have. And all the mean, mm. in the meanwhile, there's also this war going on with the red ants. That's more like, I mean, in a way it's sort of like how we kind of thought about the war in F. A lot of people thought about the war in Afghanistan where it's just sort of like that's happening in the far off. And sometimes it impacts us, but you know, it's also something that you have the luxury of being able to shut mm-hmm. off thinking about because mm-hmm. it's happening so far away and we're not like, it's not imp- immediately impacting our world, like in the United States. And that's mm-hmm. sort of like, he kind of captures that vibe, I think really well, but it, it's very similar in terms of like, I'm trapped in the system and, and I guess this is my life now, but there's no way for me to really get out. That's so he's a the- real optimistic creator. Is what you're saying about DeForge. Yeah, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say he's really dark. Necessi- I mean, I, I don't necessarily think the worlds he depicts are any, are any darker than the world that we exist in today, right? It's just kind of like... Well, truth, truth is scarier than fiction, right? Like, I mean, this... I'd have to go back through the spreadsheet, but this is... If you kind of look at what this book presupposes and kind of... I don't know if I'd call them warnings... But kind of the the narrative setting, if not the message or the plot, this is one of the darker books that we've read, man. And it doesn't come across as that because it's like goofy surrealism. Yeah. But the things this the themes this book is putting forward, the things this book is trying to make you think about in a non-literal sense are really fucking dark, man. It's actually a good point because on the surface, when you kind of just flip through it, it doesn't look dark. It's actually very brightly, there are pages that are very brightly colored. There's nothing violent that happens in this book. It's probably violent. That's why it's like G-rated. Here's what it is. It's all the historical trauma. Okay, look, the fictional shit, like the Junji Ito, it's just kind of weird imagination. The, The My Friend Dahmer... The Khmer Rouge book, you know, name all the tragedy books that we've read about, like Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera. They're in the past. So like watching a fiction movie, a horror movie, or even a documentary, you can be like, well, that happened before. I know it all works out. We're going to be fine. This book paints a picture pretty accurately about, hey, it's not even like a warning. It's like, no, this is where things are going, and this is how we're going to fit into the things that are going. And you can't do anything about it. <laughs> That's like really dark and scary. Yeah, this is the I think no, I think keeps you up at night. Right, yeah, cuz it's it's a I mean like I like we've been talking about it's the world that we live in, like literally you and I exist in versus in the world right. that we're inevitably racing towards. Right, the best like 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 when we read the best we could do or grass or something like that. That was history. I mean, it happened. Yeah, we're it so much better. We we're, we're cool. We figured it out. We're better than those people. But it's a t- it was a different time, right? And you know, again, Junji Ito, love Junji Ito, but there is a level of escapism. It's a sort of like fear that you get when you watch a horror movie. I mean, mm-hmm. literally, it's like a horror movie. But you can always kind of put it down and be like, well, you know, she's not really a succubus. There aren't really succubuses in the world, you know. But yeah, Familiar Face, it just, you know, and it it, it just casts a very, it, it just really feels like a, a mirror. And it's just so weird that it does because, again, like the images are just like these big shapes, you know, like the characters are just these big shapes and it's these brightly colored things. And when you flip through it, it really doesn't, you know, if you if you weren't, if you didn't have the words, you really probably wouldn't know what the fuck is going on. It's just like, it's just, it just, you know, it's just a bunch of strange images. 
But once he puts it together in a story, it has a level of power that, I mean, you know, it, it, it sticks with you as you read it. And I think, you know, we, you were ta- you were kind of chiding me earlier because the original draft of the introduction that I wrote was really dark. You're like, I don't think it's, well, you, really, you were saying, where I in my life isn't that dark. Well, I hope you're okay. <laughs> but I think, I think, I think a large part of it is that it was sort of like, I'm trying to kind of cue up this book. And the book is inherently pretty dark. It has a, well, I don't want to say it has a dark worldview, but maybe it has, it kind of has an honest worldview. And that, and, and just kind of like looking at that, seeing our world kind of reflected through Michael DeForge's eyes is not very pleasant to look at. It's, it's, it's scary. Yeah. So you need to be comfortable with yourself. <laughs> like, that's my warning. Like, make sure you're good with where things are with your life before you <laughs> read this book. Cause it's not that it's like such a dark take. It's just like, this book lingers on your mind. It yeah. makes you think about the state of things and where things are going. And look, I'm in in the first 20 years of my life, I saw she's call it like the teens and the mid 20s. I was super pessimistic. And somewhere in those late 20s, early 30s, things got really good. And I, and I have no illusions about how bad the world is and how fucked up things could be and the frog and boiling water of our society on so many different aspects. Right. But I'm happy. You know, I'm genuinely happy to do the things that I get to do and live the life I get to live, even though things are changing. And, you know, I'm kind of like ready to face those changes. But this book paints in no unclear and no uncertain terms, like the the world we are racing towards. One of one of the things that I found that was most interesting to me, but also kind of really discomforting to me was the computer that the protagonist interfaces with. Kind of, it's, kind of a zany Hal. Yeah, right? Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. It's sort of a zany version of Hal. And the computer, you know, it basically functions like a search engine. But at the same time, like the way the computer is represented, there's all of these kind of weird emoticons, this weird, a lot of weird emotion. There's like this performative emotion to the computer, like when the computer is rejects a request it looks distressed and says i'm sorry i can't help you with this or, it's a distraction machine too right or or you know when when it's trying to you know it acts very friendly sometimes to the protagonist you know with like hearts over its eyes and and there's something like a, a kind of inherently performative about that emotion where it's like exaggerated, but also completely not genuine. That again is also something that we get a lot of, I think in, you know, this world of social media where the the simulacrum, even of like, you know, what AI chatbots. Well, you're right. It's telling you, it's telling you what you want to hear. Right. But also sometimes in the way, like you write emails, like you think, should I put an exclamation mark next to, I hope you have a good day or something like that. Like, I don't really care whether you have a good day. I just I'm re- re- reaching out to you because I need something from you. Um, but, you know, sometimes you're kind of like affecting this super friendly persona. And I kind of do it reflexively. Oh, shit, I should, probably should cut this part, but whatever. No one's listening. You know, you kind of do it <laughs> reflexively sometimes in your emails where it's like, hey, hope things are going great. You know, by the way, you haven't paid my invoice. <laughs> all right, take care, you know, something like that. And, and you know, we, we're all kind of, a lot of us are kind of doing that. And I, I, I feel like, I don't even know where that comes from. But also, like, would I get that from somebody else? Like, hey, Ryan, just 
you know, just wanted to flag this email, make sure it's at the top of your inbox. Wink, wink, smiley face. But I'm pretty sure you also want to kick in my teeth for not responding to you for like the third time. <laughs> you know? And so it's sort of like that wink, wink, smiley face, exclamation mark, super friendly. It's like hiding, you know, a really dark desire to like, you know, throttle me. That's like... Anyway, but that's me, though. You sure know how to pick them, Ryan. You sure know how to pick them. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, that that, that performative emotion that kind of really kind of exists across, that, that really started to become prevalent once, you know, social media became a thing. You know, I think that's, I, I mean, I think, I think, I think, you know, DeForge is really kind of tapping that. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think these things, they always existed but you had more surface area to draw them on in the sense of, you know, in the world of email, we were sending significantly more messages versus written correspondence. And in a world of social media posts and tweets, everything became shorter and faster. And so your ability to kind of inject authenticity or a lack thereof, right? Or some locker of it, there's just more opportunities to like apply the trade. And so it kind of evolved faster into what it is now. Right. In other words, we're all becoming psychopaths. That's the moral of the story becoming <laughs> we have become psychopaths the digital world has made us psychopaths no we were always psychopaths in the digital world oh that's more opportunities that's to the, like show it off that's a twist that's the that's the big that's the big that that's the updated version of nature versus nurture roman were well, we always no, no, psychopaths this, well okay so i had a, a history professor in high school who posited that what separates us from the animals? Because we're effectively animals, right? But more than effectively, civilized. literally. Well, but what what separates us from the animals? We're civilized. Well, what is civilization? Civilization is a a rejection of the na- natural way. the The decision to put clothes on our body, right? To to farm the land, to not necessarily hunt other creatures, but to save the food. Right. These are and it's not to say that animals don't exhibit some of these behaviors at varying levels of intelligence, beavers, dolphins, etc. But it's the choice to reject that is which is natural is civilization. And again, that's kind of what this book does. Like this is so far away from the natural order of everything is man-made. Everything is all of evolution. Like we're playing God with with the streets and our bodies and you know these updates that are being pushed. So this book is the end point of civilization. Well, fantastic. Michael DeForge, congratulations. You've you've taken us to the end point. <laughs> well, okay, so all that being said, Raman, would, would would you recommend this? I, I know I get the sense that you respected the book and you enjoyed it, but also you were completely unnerved by it. So I'm actually really curious what your answer to that question Again, is. Again, I'm unnerved by it, but I'm in a good place when I'm reading it. So I'd recommend it to people who are in a good place. <laughs> like, I think you need to be in a good place to read this book. If you're not, eh, this might this might like open up other avenues of distress and worry and pessimism. I, I mean, what about you? Who would you yeah, you can't you can't be the person who's like conscientiously trapped in the system and trying to get out because you're just going to feel more trapped. Essentially, is what you're. Yeah, what you're saying. <laughs> would I recommend it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just, I just like, I just really am captivated by michael deforge's way of viewing the world i think it's he has an unusual unique vision his art like is so distinct and it really kind of captures the surreal oh what's 
surreality, is that even a word? The surrealness, the surreal nature of the world. But at the same time, it's not so surreal that like sometimes these books can be so abstract that it just you have no idea what the fuck it's about. But The Forge also has this sort of like there's always something kind of recognizable in what he's either describing or depicting. And of course, there's that emotional core between the the love between the protagonist and Jessica that really kind of gets you through it. That really kind of is the narrative thing that drives the uh, is the thing that drives the narrative engine. So yeah, I I, to I totally recommend it. It's a it's a very unusual book, but DeForge is like I mean I think he's a real treat to read just because he's just so he just has a very kind of different way of perceiving the world and kind of reading both like things like Familiar Face or even Ant Colony, his first graphic novel. You know, you're kind of seeing the world through his eyes, and it's also very recognizable and relatable. Not it, not necessarily in a particularly pleasant way, but um, you know, it's it's sort of like putting a strange light on something familiar. Which brings me to my next question, Raman, which is, what are we reading next week? Well, Ryan, as we continue to march our way through the alphabet, G is for Jean Lun Yang, and. Jean Lun Yang is someone that we have read multiple books of on this podcast, the Eisner Award-winning cartoonist, former math teacher, who we really admire. And, you know, I wanted to originally just read one of his books, American Born Chinese, which is about to be turned into a live-action Disney Plus show to air in May. But there's another book of his, among his many, many books, that I read years ago that when I was just kind of on a tear of trying to read everything by this guy called The Eternal Smile which is a compilation of short stories. So both books kind of have a very kind of plain spoken approach to them with kind of a deeper meaning with a little bit of mysticism. So next week or next whenever, next episode, G is for Jean Lu Yang with American, a double feature with American Born Chinese and The Eternal Smile. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of the books we read at qtdcomics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong. qtdcomics at gmail.com. Give you a social media handle, but we're old, and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe.